Let's pray together. Father God, we come before you this afternoon. Um, we are looking forward to a new year just around the corner. And maybe we are weary from this year, or maybe we are excited about what's to come. Lord, you know these things. You know all things. And, and we humble ourselves before you, as James prayed earlier, or to, to hear from your word at this time so we might use the days that you've given us, the weeks and the months, for your glory, for your purposes, for your sake, for the name and the worship of your son, Jesus Christ. We celebrated his birth last night. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, good afternoon. It's good to be with all of you on this right side of the room. For some reason, it's way more crowded than this other side. That's cool. Um, it's good to be with you. Merry Christmas. Uh, it's always a joy to preach to the church family here at Zoe, especially when the kids are here with us. Um, this past week, like many of you, I got to see some family that I hadn't seen in a while. In fact, I saw my aunt and uh, my cousins. And my cousins are fully grown like myself, and my aunt is in a later stage in life. And one of the funny things about it is um, when we were young, we would always do family reunions um, when my grandfather was still around. Uh, you guys probably can relate to that. We would gather together. We would see the cousins. And um, I just have these really vivid memories of that time and uh, especially just how people looked. And this time when I was back with my aunt and with my cousins and my uncle, um, I looked at the people around me and I wasn't so like impressed about how the kids had grown, but I looked at the adults and I was like, you look exactly like how our aunt looked when we were kids. And I looked in the mirror and I was like, you look exactly like how your dad looked when we were kids. And, and as I, I looked around and being an adult now and a parent, I realized, you know, we just, uh, every year it's like one step further from birth to death, right? One step farther on the journey of life. And that's kind of the thought that leads to the sermon for this afternoon. We're, we're post-Christmas. It was just last night. And so it's a little bit strange having just celebrated the birth of Jesus last night that what I want to talk with you about today is not birth, but death, at least to introduce our message. We're going to be in the book of Second Peter chapter 1. You turn your Bibles there with me if you have a Bible with you or your phone. And I have a question for you to answer, and you can share it, you can write it down, the answer, or you could even share it with, with a kid if you have one of your children next to you, just to kind of get this in your mind, get your wheels turning. At the end of your life, when all has been said and done, what would you like your tombstone or your headstone to read? What words, maybe one to five words, would you want to have on your headstone? You can take a moment to write it down or share with your son or daughter or your spouse or a friend. Um, just think about that. I remember as a youth, um, my dad told me, and I was in service like this with him, he told me that the word that he would want on his tombstone would be faithful. He would want it to say faithful. And I guess that a lot of you have different words you would want on your tombstones if you thought about that, what you would want to have written about you in the end. But there are two words that I know nobody said right now when they shared, or nobody wrote down. And the words are ineffective and unfruitful. Hopefully no one wrote that. Nobody in their right mind, given the ability to write their own eulogy or epitaph, would say willfully, here lies Eric Lau, an unfruitful an ineffective man. And yet with one year closing and another just around the corner, we need to recognize that the Bible actually tells us that there is a danger 
and an encouragement, but a danger here and a warning that we can live our lives in such a way that we can be ineffective and unfruitful in the things that truly matter. You know, in a Christian culture, in America especially, it's hard for us to kind of grasp this idea, but the Bible tells us that it's possible for you to get to the end of your life and to show up before God and he will say, not well done. You didn't serve me. You didn't do a very good job. But on the flip side, and is the positive point of this message this afternoon, it is possible, if we read the Bible, for us to be fruitful, for you to be effective in your life, day after day, year after year, for the entirety of your time here on earth, it's possible for you to take advantage of your days if you understand what the Word of God says. So this morning, as we look forward to a new year, kind of putting behind us 2021, the hope is that we would understand from Scripture the opportunity we have to be fruitful and effective and faithful to the Lord. So we're going to look at Second Peter Chapter 1, verses 5 through 8. You can read it with me. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. In these verses, Peter shows us that while the danger of living an ineffective and unfruitful life is real, God has given us what we need to keep that from becoming our fate as individuals and as a church. And so we're going to look into this list of qualities that should accompany our faith, because if these qualities are increasing in our lives, they keep us from that unfaithfulness. So in our time today, we're going to see eight qualities of an effective and fruitful life so that we might steward well our coming year and really every year to come. As we begin looking at this list that Peter describes for us, what you'll see there right at the beginning in verse 5, the first quality he mentions is the quality of faith. He says, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, virtue with knowledge, and so on and so forth. So it starts with faith. And this is really important for this list um, because we see here that while faith begins Peter's description, it's not just another part of the list, right? Read it closely. If you look at the text, you'll see that Peter says in verse 5, we are to supplement your faith with all of these things. And so everything that Peter says that's going to happen is supplemental to this big idea of faith. This is where we need to start. What does it mean? Well, it means that faith is the basis for all the other qualities that are going to be described. They accompany our faith. They adorn our faith, but faith is the main thing, it's the first thing, it's the soil from which all these qualities grow. So we need to define faith. Okay, what is faith? Faith in the Christian's life and in most of the New Testament, it speaks precisely of our own belief in the Lord and our trust in the gospel message. Right? It's not just kind of this, this esoteric or random trust that things are going to turn out well. It has to do specifically with our trust in the Lord and in the gospel message of who Jesus is and what he has done. And so what Peter says here is that our trust in the gospel, our faith placed in Jesus so that we might be saved, that's the beginning of every virtue that matters in the Christian's life. It goes back to what we believe about him and whether or not we have a relationship of trust with him. Now, you have to notice how verse 5 begins with, for this very reason. And so there's a context to this. 
If you look back in verses 3 and 4, Peter describes how God has granted to us all things pertaining to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who has called us to his own glory and excellence. So because of Jesus, God has given us everything we need to live a good and fruitful life. So by beginning with faith as the thing which all other qualities accompany or adorn, Peter reveals that before we can talk about anything you ought to do in life, you need to make sure you understand what God has done. Before we can talk about stewarding the rest of your days so that they're effective and fruitful, we need to realize that it starts not with us, but with God and with Jesus, his son. I think most of you here know the story of Jesus. But it's good for us at the end of a year and and the beginning of a new one to hit those notes again. Who is Jesus Christ? The son of God. He's God himself incarnate who came to this earth to live a perfect life, to to live the life none of us could ever live, and then to die on the cross the death that you and I deserve. The gospel message tells us that all of us deserve separation and punishment for the sins that we've committed against God, and yet in Jesus, God took the punishment we deserve and placed it on his own perfect son. There was a great exchange that happened so that Jesus took the punishment we deserve and we get to be treated as if we lived his perfect sinless life if we have faith, if we believe in him. Because of everything Jesus did, faith alone in Jesus saves. But this doesn't mean that faith alone is the only thing that matters. You see, what we understand from this list is that God expects our faith to result in fruit. But the order matters here. Faith comes first. It's the thing of first importance. And then we need to look at this list of qualities to see whether or not our faith is being lived out the way that God desires. As one writer has put it, the key to being effective as Christians is to realize that we don't have to be effective to get into heaven. You don't have to be a a quote-unquote good person to get into heaven. But because God forgives you, you can now live a good life. Faith is the starting point. It's the foundation. It's what is accompanied by these qualities. And so the first of these supplemental qualities that Peter tells us is the quality of virtue. You guys see that right there? Virtue. Uh, the word virtue is not as common in our world as it used to be, right? You probably haven't used that word recently in your life. If you have, then uh, maybe you just enjoy speaking in kind of an old-fashioned way. The last time I can remember anyone talking about virtue in my life was actually not that long ago. It was probably like two weeks ago when uh, Emily Lira was in our house, and she picked up this book, The Book of Virtues, that was on our shelf. It's an old book that my parents bought for me when I was a kid. And just recently, when they moved from California to Virginia, they drove by and they dropped off the Book of Virtues. I don't know what that's about. Uh, If they had a message they were trying to send me. It's a children's book. Um, It's really large. It's about how to have a good moral life, supposedly. Now, there's one story in the Book of Virtues that I um, remember so well. I don't know why it stuck with me. And maybe you've heard this story before, because it is a common story. It's a story about a boy who had received a golden ball of string one day or yarn. And this golden ball of yarn was magical. And what he could do with that uh, ball of yarn is that if he pulled it a little bit, he found out that his life would jump forward that much. And so actually what it turned out was that the ball of yarn represented his whole life. And so if he wanted to skip to the end of the day, he would pull it a little bit, and then all of a sudden it would be the end of class. So he could skip all the hard parts of that. And then later in life, as he got older, he met a girl and he wanted to marry her, but he had to go through this long process of courtship. So he decided, I'm just going to pull the string. He pulled the string, Pop forward, they were married, 
And he kept pulling the string more and more to kind of skip through all the difficult parts of life to get to having kids, to being um, promoted at work, to being a grandparent. At the end of his life, he realized that all of his life had disappeared because he never learned the virtue of patience. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. There's eight points to this sermon, so I wish I had a ball of string right now. So I could just poof, pull past. No, patience is a virtue. But the book of virtues, it's talking about these moral qualities that make life worth living. The book of virtues illustrates the truth that in this world, we recognize what is good. Even if it's a sinful world, even if it's broken, even if we know that people are going to sin against one another, we still have this consciousness of what is good. And the term virtue in the New Testament, it was a vague term as well, encompassing all these moral qualities. But the one thing that was common is that a virtuous person did things that were worthy of praise. That's the idea, that a virtuous person did things that were worthy of recognition. That's why in Philippians 4.8, the Apostle Paul says that there are all these things we should dwell upon. He says, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. It's the same term for virtue, something that is praiseworthy, something that deserves to be recognized. Other translations use the term moral excellence or goodness here. And it's interesting because what we see in this book, now in Second Peter, Peter was worried about false teaching. He was worried that people would have sound doctrine. But what we see is that the way he kind of defined sound doctrine wasn't just theological error. It was a person who believed things but lived a life that didn't match up with those beliefs. You see, you can't be a sound church if you're not living sound lives. If you're not living lives that are, up, are, are, are morally upright and worthy of praise. The opposite of a person with virtue is a person you don't talk about because you have nothing nice to say about them at all. You see, what Peter warns us against when he talks about virtue is that there are, there are temptations in life to not have any desire to grow in holiness, to be content with your sin as you've always been, to do what is best for yourself and have no care for the improvement of your life for the purposes of God. And so Peter rebuked that perspective with the term virtue. You see, the whole of your Christian life, if you are a Christian, is not supposed to be just showing up to church and agreeing with what the pastor says. That's important. Yes, you, you need to know things. But we as Christians are supposed to be increasing and abounding in virtue, in goodness in our lives. So let me ask you a question. Would people in your life say that you are a good person? Now, we know no one is good, right? Not even when no one is perfectly righteous the way the Lord is. But would people in your life say that you're a person who cares about good works? See, for some of us here, as we look forward to a new year, the first step is to just value goodness and virtue in our life. When was the last time you did something that nobody made you do because you knew it was the right thing? Could it be as soon as today or tomorrow when you begin to do that? As you think about virtue, perhaps you realize that, that your desire to be good has kind of fallen on the back burner of your life. And yet the Bible says as a Christian, this should be something that accompanies your faith. That if you actually believe in Jesus, you believe these truths about the gospel, you should have a, a desire, a zealousness to live a virtuous life worthy of praise and recognition. Next, Peter tells us that we are to abound in the quality of knowledge. 
person who's increasing in knowledge guards himself against an ineffective and unfruitful life. Now, this is an oversimplification to a degree, but I think it's, it's generally true that as limited human beings, there are really only two states of mind that we can be in regarding any topic. We're either learning or we're forgetting. If you've been learning a lot in life, praise God, but for me, I find myself as I get older to be more on the side of forgetting. And maybe some of you can relate to that. There are things that, that I used to think I knew so well that I realize I forget very easily. In life, we either increase in knowledge or we decrease. We either grow in our understanding or we lose that understanding. Now, Peter reminds us here that as Christians, we need to be constantly increasing in one particular place of knowledge. The knowledge of our Lord. This reminds us of Romans 12 too, where Paul says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. You see, there's this amazing kind of promise about faith in the Bible that if you are, are, are trying to understand God better, if you're growing in your knowledge of him, then you will know how to live. You'll have wisdom for how to live this life according to his will, to do what is good and to do what is acceptable and to do what is perfect. For Peter, the knowledge he was referencing was not um, multiplication tables, of course, or, or random trivia. It was knowledge of the person, Jesus Christ. So as we begin to think about Jesus through the Bible, through prayer, through, through focusing ourselves on Scripture, in our minds we begin this process of renewal so that we can live renewed effective lives. Let me ask you another question. If I were to ask, not you, but if I were to ask the people in your life, what is this person an expert in? What would they say? What does this person have a lot of knowledge about? What would you say about your spouse? Or what would your kids say about you as a parent or just as a friend? Unfortunately for me, I think if I were to ask people, they would say I have a lot of knowledge about useless things. Uh, maybe I have a lot of knowledge about the new Spider-Man movie, but uh, that's not that important. For many of us, the area where we love to increase in knowledge is like that. It's the latest movie, the most recent celebrity gossip. For some reason, we know everything about these people that have nothing to do with our lives. A recent political situation, or maybe for some of you, you're experts in uh, fantasy football and who's starting or sitting today. Yet how many of us are increasing in knowledge, are experts in the word of God that reveals Jesus Christ to us. Peter says here is that our faith in Christ is to be accompanied by an increasing knowledge of the one in whom we place our faith. So how can you grow in your knowledge of Christ? Well, it's simple, but but you need to be in the word. Every new year, we try to say this as a church, that we're a church that values the Bible, and that's not just on the pulpit but in our lives as believers, that we need to be increasing in the knowledge of the word of God. A few years back, we had talked about this in the church, and some of us at Zoe uh, read the Bible through for the first time in a year. And there's no shame in that. There's no shame in, in having done that for the first time as an adult. We need to grow in our knowledge of the word of God and of Jesus Christ. But there is shame in not even wanting to read the Bible, to know the word of God. And so many Christians are like that. They have all these opinions. They know everything that God wants for them, yet they don't want to read his word. They don't want to know what he actually has said. They say, I'm going to live my life with this as my authority, but they don't even know what it says. Make the plans to do it, Peter says. There is no commandment that you should read the Bible in a year, 
But why would it surprise us that people who rarely look into the word of God are more prone to live ineffective and unfruitful lives? Why would it surprise us that people who never read the instruction manual don't know how to work the appliance in their house? Do you know more today about Christ's perfection, about his work, about the commands of Jesus in scripture than you did a year ago? Are you forgetting those things over time? Determine today to have a greater knowledge of Jesus in December of 2022 than you do today. Not just about how to live a better life, but how to know better the source of all life. Your faith should be adorned with increasing knowledge. Fourth, Peter tells us that as Christians, we should be abounding in self-control. Self-control. This is the hard one for me, as it is for many of you. I kind of wish it wasn't in here. But so many of us, especially um, I think men in life, can handle knowledge. We like to think about things, but self-control is just another thing altogether, isn't it? Self-control is a lot harder. See, we cannot take only parts of Scripture that we like and neglect the others. The Bible is clear that if, if you love theology, you want to know more about God, it should be leading to a life of greater self-control. The Bible never says that as Christians, you can do whatever you want. That it is okay to simply fulfill every want or desire as long as it isn't technically sin. That's not what the Bible says. That's not the kind of life the Bible presents as being fruitful and effective. In fact, that's exactly the kind of life that leads to someone being saved at the end, but having escaped as through the fire. That all they did was the things that they wanted to. They followed their desires. They didn't live with self-control for the things of God. See, we can't get this wrong about the gospel. Okay? I'm not saying that you need to live a certain quality of life in order for Jesus to save you. As if your goodness saves you. But it's still important that your life be transformed away from your own natural desires to the desires of God. Here's an illustration, okay? Um, I have four kids now. Um, and as those kids grow up, I'm sure that there's going to be times in life where they don't want to do what I tell them to do, okay? They're, they're going to disagree with me um, many times, and maybe they, they won't like that I raise them in church. I don't know. There could be many things that happen. I've seen a lot of things happen. Um, now, just because they stop doing what I want them to do, or just because maybe they are rebellious during a season of their teenage years, it doesn't mean that they're not my son or daughter anymore. Right? There's nothing that they can do to change that fact that they are my son or, or my daughter, that I'm going to love them as a member of my family. And yet, if they don't show up to family meals, and they stay in their room all day, and they don't do their responsibilities, they're not being an effective and fruitful member of the family. Peter reminds us that as Christians, if we do not discipline ourselves, if we do not have self-control, we can be like that youth. We can be like that teenage Christian who's, yeah, he's part of the family of God, but he's not doing anything to bless it. Peter says we are to make every effort to accompany our faith with the qualities he describes. And this is where self-control comes in. We make an effort. See, self-control is the denial of your desires for that which is truly good. The denial of temporary wants for that which lasts forever. It's the discipline to not indulge the flesh or selfish desires because we know that there is something greater that we're living for. I know that many of you in the church, that you love to run. Right? I don't, I'm not part of that group. I don't love running. Um, but I think running is the perfect example of self-control. If you're a person who likes to run, um, you know that a person who doesn't have discipline in running will never 
complete a marathon. Now, some people talk about having a runner's high. Right? Maybe some of you don't raise your hand. Maybe some of you have felt it. I've never felt it before, but I know all of us know what the runner's low is, right? It feels like you're dying. It feels like you're literally dying, like your body wasn't meant for this. So it isn't feeling good that makes someone disciplined enough to run. Right? It's not that you start, one day you went on a walk and you, you had to sprint to catch your dog because it got off the leash and you're like, oh, I love this feeling, right? Let me get that again. No, you understand the long-term benefit and then you discipline yourself in the short term so that you might achieve that. This is what self-control looks like. You do something that your body doesn't naturally want to do because of the greater desire you have to be healthy, to finish a race maybe, to enjoy some of the benefits of running or perhaps even to fellowship with other runners. That's how it works in the physical world. It works the same way in the spiritual world as well. Discipline and awareness and, and, and kind of this, this far-sightedness to let go of what seems good right now in the moment in order to achieve what is the greater good that you know from Scripture. We know this is true in life. When you have a child, you know you can't just let them live out their desires or they're going to be messed up. If you don't know, you need to know that now. And, and we need to talk about that as parents because if you just let your child do whatever he desires in the moment, he or she will turn out messed up. They will turn out spoiled. They will turn out unable to handle the world. You teach them not to only eat dessert so they don't become morbidly obese. You teach them not to hit people so that they won't get physically retaliated again, right? Hopefully this is ringing a bell to some of you parents. You teach them not to play with a gun. That's important in Texas. No matter how much they want to do it in the moment because it might get them killed. And we don't just grow out of that need for self-discipline with age. Instead, our need to understand it changes to fit the circumstance we're in. We realize that self-discipline affects every area of life. I remember as a young man coming out of college, there were some things that I thought I knew that I needed to learn to discipline myself in. I needed to know how to get up on time to go to work. Otherwise, I would lose my job. I needed to know how to keep commitments. I needed to know how to find accountability for sins, to be timely, to manage money. All these things, which seem so practical, come self-control. And the reason wasn't that God wanted me to stop having fun or to somehow give up a, a life of joy of playing video games all day, right? No, it's not that God wanted to kill my fun. He wanted me to live a life for the things that truly mattered. He wanted me to learn that truly living requires selflessness and compassion and trustworthiness. And all those things are only aided by self-control. So then we need to have self-control to determine what is important and to deny our desires in the short term for that which matters in the long run. Really, it's God control, right? Believing him, letting him, his word, control and direct your desires for what is good. So how do you do that? Well, first, put to death the deeds of the flesh. Self-control means mortifying the members of the body, the indwelling sin that all of us have. It means putting away Flakiness, not being a person of your word. It means denying selfishness in order to be selfless in relationships. It means replacing lust with love. It means replacing the influence of drugs or alcohol with the influence of the spirit. And then it also means to grow in the discipline of the things that are good. We already talked about Bible reading, intake of the word. But one way that self-control can exist and abound in your life is through the pursuit of these spiritual disciplines. Discipline yourself to pray. 
to read the word, to memorize, to serve in the church, to meet with others. And in all this, the power comes from the gospel. Self-control in your life will help you keep from being ineffective and unfruitful. Fifthly, Peter tells us that we are to abound also in steadfastness. You can look into your uh, Bibles. The word steadfastness is sometimes translated other ways in different versions. Um, Maybe the word perseverance is used in your Bible translation. And this helps us understand the word that Peter meant. Steadfastness speaks of perseverance in the faith despite difficulty or hardship. See, Peter knows that we need endurance for the Christian life. In a sense, Peter was speaking about the endurance uh, in the face of physical trials and danger. But in the context of this letter, the bigger concern that Peter had was for those who were tempted to fall away into the teachings of the false teachers who denied Christ through their lives, through their actions. Right? It's not just about this physical temptation or this physical trial. It's about a spiritual difficulty of wanting to turn away from the things of God because it's just too hard. You know, Trisha and I, we went to um, Hawaii on our honeymoon 12 years ago. It's been a while now. I was... Uh, kind of surprised by how long it's been already. That's the theme of this sermon, right? Life just flies by. Um, if you've ever been to Hawaii, it's an amazing place. Um, I hope we can return to it once, but um, I remember as we were leaving Hawaii, and it's kind of like paradise. It's like a little slice of paradise. It's really awesome. All the travel brochures are pretty accurate. Um, but as we were leaving, I looked at the airplane, and I was looking out, and, and I looked both ways, and it's like ocean as far as you can see, which is kind of shocking, right? You can't see land at all. It's just straight up blue, no matter which way you look. And we're like, I don't know how tall the plane is, 10,000 feet in the air. I don't know exactly how high we were, but we were pretty high in the sky, and we weren't seeing any land at all. And I started to wonder, how did people get to this island in the first place? You ever think about that? How do people show up in Hawaii in the first place? Because it's really, really far from the next closest land. And so, of course, I looked up Wikipedia um, when I got home and got Wi-Fi, and I found out that it was people from Tahiti, okay? So people from Tahiti who first most likely settled Hawaii a few thousand years ago. Now, in case you don't know, because you're an American like me, and why would you know this? uh, Tahiti is an eight-hour flight from Hawaii. Eight-hour flight over the ocean, okay? The journey by sea from modern studies, if they were to kind of calculate how long it would take, probably took one to two months of canoeing to get from Tahiti to Hawaii. Now, can you imagine being one of those early settlers or having a guy show up and be like, hey, I just got off the boat from uh, three months, and uh, there's this place I want you to come with me. Just get in the canoe for uh, 50 days, and we'll be there. You know, from what I hear, people get bored on cruises where for three days all you have is endless food, endless entertainment, anything you want, and people are bored with that. I can't even imagine, right, 30, 40, 50 days of the sun, open ocean, blistering heat, chapped lips, to get to a place that you had never seen. This was before photography, right? This was before cell phones. All you would have is the word from a few people who had supposedly been there, that if you went on this journey, if you persevered, If you kept paddling for another month, paradise would be just over the horizon. I think so many of those people probably turned back. So many people said, you know what, Tahiti is good enough for me. But for those who continued on, they were rewarded with paradise. 
This is the picture that the Bible gives us of steadfast perseverance. You know, as we live this life, I know, I know, I know we feel weary sometimes because it's hard. Who doesn't know that? Every religion in the world will tell you that one of the main things that we experience as human beings is suffering. That this is the common experience of all people. And so it's hard. We go through life and we see suffering, suffering, and we believe in Jesus. And, and there might be a religious experience you have, and praise God for that. That is his grace to you, but still we live and we suffer. And we see how hard it can be. Maybe a season of singleness or a season of, of sin or a season of illness or just anything that causes us to wonder, can we continue on? Can we keep paddling? Can we keep going on this journey? There are temptations. There are temptations to give up when the people around you start to stop believing. They ridicule the gospel. They hate the Bible. They look down on what was once commonly accepted. There will be a temptation to follow those who present a gospel that offends no one. A gospel that, hey, everyone's okay with God. That doesn't require us to think about sin and repentance. That hell is real and that Jesus is the only way. These are real temptations in the church, and I'm sure in our church right now. There will be the temptation to believe that the call to die to self, to love God and love others, is just not worth it because it is insanely hard. There are people who are not easy to love at all. And so you'll have the temptation to think it's impossible. It's not worth it. I'm going back. The benefits of giving in to these temptations are real. Our lives may become easier for a season on the earth. And yet for those who persevere, for those who are steadfast, the reward is far greater. So I don't know if you're struggling this morning. I assume some of you are. I don't know if you are at the point where you feel like you thought you, you knew what you were doing, but now you're far away. What Peter encourages us to do is to not give up, to not lose heart, to be steadfast in trusting in the Lord, to trust in the power of the one who leads and guides us to the end, the one who has written the story. And as one author says, for the Christian, endurance is not about personal bravery or detachment, but the believer's trust in God and hope for the fulfillment of all his promises. Jesus said, he who endures to the end will be saved. Not just be saved, but will eat from the tree of life in paradise with our Savior. And so though we cannot see it, Jesus tells us that he has prepared for us a place in that paradise. The effective and fruitful Christian endures in the faith despite temptations and hardships and trials. Sixth, Peter speaks of the quality of godliness. What is godliness? It might surprise you to learn that the word godliness didn't originate with Christians. The Greek word godliness. It didn't originate with um, like a Judeo-Christian worldview. It's a word that was used fairly commonly in the general um, society of that time. It spoke of a pious person, someone who did the proper rites and ceremonies and duties required to appease the Roman or Greek god. So that's where the word came from. Godliness was just someone who, who did religious things. A godly person in the general sense was someone who, who lived a religious life. But in the New Testament, for the Christian, godliness begins to change what it means. It begins to speak much more uh, than just simple religiousness or piety towards God of doing acts. But godliness in the Christian life, as it's used by Peter and Paul, speaks of the focus, a Godward focus in our lives. 
And this is unique to Christians because as Christians, we know that the purpose of life is to bring glory to Jesus, that the theme of creation is redemption in Christ to the glory of God. So we need to understand this idea of God's glory. The unbeliever sees someone who goes to church, right? They see someone who, who goes maybe uh, once a month or, or, or twice a month to church, who gives some of their money to religious causes, who prays before a meal. And that's the idea of godliness from a secular perspective, for someone who doesn't understand what the New Testament teaches about the glory of God. But for the Christian, godliness is about the man or woman whose life is lived for that purpose of bringing God glory in everything. It's not about the acts themselves. It's about the reason behind the acts. Perhaps it's best to think of godliness in this year for yourself in terms of your devotion to God's glory in all of life. Do you want God to be made much of in you? Are you growing to become more like Christ, where the things that he taught you become the truths that guide your life so that people see it and they glorify your Father in heaven? Are you abounding in your awareness of what pleases him so that he is pleased, not so that you get the things you've always wanted from him? Is your life like, the, like John the Baptist who said, he must increase and I must decrease? Godliness is a God-centered perspective rather than a self-centered perspective. Seventh, we see the quality here of brotherly affection. The word here for brotherly affection comes from the Greek word phileo, uh, which you might be pop, uh, familiar with as a term that speaks of brotherly love, like Philadelphia, companionship, friendship. Um, but I think a more accurate way to say it for us, as opposed to brotherly affection, would be a family love, right? family affection. This commitment to your family is something that plays an important part in every culture. Right? And I was reminded of that in Christmas time, talking to different people in the church. Everyone has different traditions, right? You all have different things that are important to your family, and you do them not necessarily because you love to do them yourself, but because it's part of what your family does. It's part of your commitment to being in that family. It's part of every culture. It's part of most families. We're expected to care for one another, provide for one another, protect one another. But in the early church among Christians, the idea of brotherly love took on a completely different meaning than it did for anyone else. Our Christians started to use the term brother and sister for one another in a way that the world didn't do. They, they, they called each other brothers and sisters in Christ, and it made people in the world feel weird about Christians. I don't know if you know this, but early on in the Roman Empire, they actually believed that Christians uh, were incestuous because they all called each other brother and sister. And so they'd be like, what, you married your wife? You married, I mean, you married your sister, you married your brother? But that wasn't what it was at all, right? Christians were just using this term that no one else in the world used. That you could see people who weren't part of your natural family as your family in God. Sharing with one another your resources. Caring about one another's problems. Living together in harmony and love because you are a family. Paul says in 1 Timothy, to not rebuke an older man but encourage him as you would a father. Treat younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. We're taught in the New Testament to see the people of God as a family. When I was studying this passage, I was reading about some of the um, difficulties that certain missionaries have experienced around the world um, as they've tried to share the gospel and some difficulties that churches around the world have experienced. And as I was reading about these stories, my first instinct was just to go on with my life. You know, just like, I, can't, I can't care about all these things. Just do nothing about it. But then the thought came, I think, because I was studying the passage, what would I think 
if it was a member of my family who was in that news article? What would I withhold if my brother or my father or Trisha and my children had lost everything that they had or were under this oppression? It's a challenge, but the Bible tells us that we need to see the family of God like a family. To treat them with love and care and affection as brothers and sisters. It's not a uniquely Christian idea to love someone. But in the context of our lives as Christian, we are supposed to love other Christians in a special way. One of the qualities in your life that should exist and be increasing, if you want to be fruitful for the Lord, is love for the church. Love for the church universal, but also love for the local church. And this is why we love to refer to Zoe, and we often refer to it as a church family. Now, there are many ways you can be loving your brothers and sisters in Christ. But if you consider yourself part of the church family here at Zoe, this is the place for it to start. Okay? This year, as you look ahead to 2022, do you realize that one of the qualities that should, should increase for you is affection for this church? It's kind of a weird thing. I think especially in Mega Church Central, right, right here in Dallas, where we got uh, big churches everywhere, uh, some of the biggest churches in the world, really. It's kind of hard to think about it this way. The Bible wants us to think about our church family as family, to care about the people in front of you in the pew. When you think about something like community groups or serving in ministries or just the people around you, you should have the sense of affection, of love, of desire to do good to them. And it should be growing and abounding as the years go by. If you are a Christian, your thoughts towards your church should not be simply, how can they help me? Really, it should be, how can I provide and care for the members of this church? If you only think about yourself, you will be ineffective and unfruitful. But if you live with brotherly affection, you will be faithful to the Lord. We should be naturally thinking, I want to love and serve those around me. Now, this applies to uh, you kids as well who are here with us. Uh, I know it's hard, right? You're, you come to church, maybe your parents make you, and, and I don't know if you love church or you don't. But when you come to church, do you just go to the kids that you know already? Or do you try to love a kid that doesn't have as many friends? Do you try to welcome people into your life? Do you see these friends as your brothers and sisters and cousins in God? For the kids, for the youth, for us as adults as well, it applies to us all. Let our brotherly affection, our familial love be abounding in life. And we will be more effective and more fruitful. And finally, lastly, Peter brings us to the eighth quality in this passage, the quality of love. If love is in your life and is increasing, it will keep you from being ineffective and unfruitful. Why did Peter close the list this way? Or why did he write it this way? Is there an importance to the order? Well, the list of qualities Peter gives us, we need to realize it's not a series of steps, okay? It doesn't say that, like, you have to first uh, get virtue, and then once you get virtue, you can get knowledge, and then once you get knowledge, you can get uh, self-control. It's not like a, a step, an order of, of um, equations. But the list that Peter gives us really only matters in order in that it starts and ends in the right place. So what exactly does Peter say? Well, this list, it tells us that our lives need to be about faith leading to love. Faith leading to love. All these things matter in the list. They're super important. They help us to be fruitful. But what really matters in the big picture of the Christian life is that you live out a life of faith leading to love. And so Peter doesn't end with godliness or steadfastness or cleanliness. He ends with love. 
The term here is different than the term before. It's not phileo. It's the term agape love. And you guys probably know this term. It's popular to talk about it in the church. For the New Testament writers, agape love was the word they used to describe the love of God. Love that was selfless and sacrificial towards us. At Zoe, we have often defined love in this way. An unconditional commitment to an imperfect person that seeks the other's highest good, even at cost to self. This is what agape love is. This is what the culmination of your faith should be. An unconditional commitment to an imperfect person that seeks the other's highest good, even at cost of self. It's a love that models the love that God has given to each one of us. It extends to the unsaved who need to hear the gospel, who maybe don't even want to hear it, but you need to tell them for their good. It extends to the enemy who God calls you to love and pray for, even though he has harmed you and and turned against you and betrayed you in so many ways. It extends to the person you don't think deserves your help anymore, but obviously still needs help. Love is a primary characteristic of the Christian moral life. What are the greatest commandments? You guys know this, right? The greatest commandments are to love God and to love others. This is the key to an effective life in God's eyes. The world doesn't believe that. The world doesn't believe that the way to be effective in life is to love God and love others. No, it's to to make the most of the minutes you have here, to build the biggest empire, to have the largest nest egg, to influence the most people. The Bible doesn't say that. Jesus doesn't say that. He says the greatest thing is to love the Lord your God and to love your neighbor as yourself. And so as we close this list, we should not think of it as a stepping stool but as a line from faith to love with all these qualities filling in the details of what it looks like to love God and others. He doesn't say just look at these seven or eight things. He says that these qualities are all illustrations and applications of the life of faith that leads to love. And so as you consider the end of this year and look forward to the next and you look at your life, it starts with faith and it ends with love. This year and every year to come. Now, the early church knew it. Over and over again, they saw faith as its foundation and love as a culmination. Love for God in every area. Love for neighbor leading you to a radical life. And we see this in the Bible. Paul wrote, if I have not love, I am nothing. John wrote, anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. You know these verses. And Peter says, if you want to live a life that pleases God, that matters for eternity, that is fruitful and effective and important and faithful, then your life must be full of love. And so as you consider this year, steward the next year by abounding in love all the more. I began by asking you what you would want the headstone on your grave to say. Um, And I don't know what you said, but I imagine maybe that some of you thought or said you would want it to say something like loving husband or loving wife or loving mother or father. And while that is good, realize that without Christ, Without Jesus, what we've done on this earth will not matter the moment we die. And yet, in Jesus, our lives can be fruitful. If you're an unbeliever, don't waste your life. The Bible calls us to come to Christ, to place your faith in him, to believe the gospel. If you are a believer this afternoon, again, don't waste your life. Live effectively and fruitfully in light of the gospel you believe. Grow in these qualities, abound in them, be a person who loves. My hope is that for each of us, as we think about our futures as a church and as individuals, 
what could be rightly written when we die is that we loved God and we loved others because of Jesus. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you this afternoon at the end of one year, realizing that there are many ways in which we need to grow. And this list of qualities can seem maybe burdensome, but we know that your commands are not burdensome. And so, Lord, help us to see it rightly as the opportunity to to turn away from maybe some of the ways in which we naturally live for the things of this earth and, and according to our own desires, and instead to understand what the life of faith leading to love really looks like. Lord, I pray that you would grow us in, 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 in self-control and in knowledge, in steadfastness, in brotherly affection, in all of these qualities and virtue, God, that we would be a church that because of our doctrine, because of what we believe about Jesus, because we believe sound things, we live sound, good lives that bring you the honor and the glory. Lord, would that be true of our church? this year and all the years to come. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.